Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to the Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Ravinder Kaur, Associate Professor at the Department of Cross-Cultural and Regional Studies, University of Copenhagen. Today we have a very special guest with us, Professor Raja Mohun. He is a regular commentator on world affairs and currently also a distinguished policy fellow at the Asia Society Policy Institute. Welcome, Professor Raja Mohun. Thank you. Great to be here. So I just want to begin with the idea of the Global South, which has gained prominence, especially after the Ukraine invasion. A number of foreign policy journals have featured articles with titles such as Return of the Global South, Global South Surging, or Winning the Global South. Take the recent BRICS enlargement in Johannesburg or the G20 meeting in Delhi, which have all centered around the mobilization of the Global South. The Global South is indeed an old concept, but how should we understand its emergence as a political actor in the last couple of years? Look, I'm skeptical of the notion of Global South as a coherent entity or as a force that can address the issues of the world. But it is a live concept. People seem to love it and it seems to have come back. Because I think it's become a a collective pronoun for widespread anti-Western resentments Mm. that exist in the world. Mm. But we should not think of it as a single group or a body that can actually redress some of the concerns uh, that it has. So therefore, we know that there are internal contradictions uh, Mm. within them. Uh, There are territorial disputes, say, for example, between India and China, or between, you know, there's economic differentiation between countries of, say, the Gulf, which have a lot of wealth, and who become investors within the rest of the global south, or Southeast Asia and East Asia that have grown uh, rapidly in the last 30 years. So so I think it's not a a single body, but what it unites them in in a broad sense are the resentments against the the West. And these have become sharper, first in the pandemic, where it looked like the West, for all its talk about a global order, was really focused on looking after itself. Mm -hmm. And then came the Ukraine war, Mm -hmm. where the consequences of that war for a large number of countries Mm -hmm. has turned out to be severe. And, and it looked like the, the West was not interested in, in these issues. But I, I believe one outcome of this, the Global South, the return of it in some sense to the discourse, is that the West is beginning to address the problem. That is, I think there is a recognition in the major capitals of the West, especially in the United States, that they've neglected the Global South for too long, or the countries mm-hmm. of the non-Western mm-hmm. world, that for 30, 40 years since the end of the Cold War, both Europe and U.S. thought all they needed was to tell the rest of the world what to do. Well, the Europe was a great empire of norms, mm. and the Americans uh, were a great power. They would just uh, do what they would want. I think that idea that these people can be taken for granted or that they would automatically come and support you when you're in a crisis. Mm. And I think that illusion has ended. And my sense is that's one good thing to come out of this, that today we already see at the G20 the U.S. working with India on the reform of the multilateral uh, development banks and to work with the developing countries on climate finance. So my sense is there is that recognition, but we should not take it as some kind of the barbarians are at the gate of the West uh, or they're going to come out and, uh, you know, the the jungle will come into the West. I mean, I think those were fears. Uh, One reason why you hear so much about it is the fears in the Western public, you know, intellectuals or the commentariat 
that some of this everyone is ganging up against the bed. That that's not really true, mm. uh, and I think there are deep internal variations. And a lot of them have very good relationship uh, with the West. For example, in the in the BRICS expansion, mm. India's relationship with the U.S. has dramatically changed. Uh, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are still very close to the uh, to the to the United States. Mm. So this notion that somehow everyone is just ganging up. I think it's it's a very hmm. it's a, it speaks about the anxieties in the West rather than the reality on the ground. If I may just uh, delve further into this ongoing discussion, especially the older histories of these ideas, global South mobilizations. For example, the 1950s and 60s non-aligned movement. How do you think these mobilizations in the 20th century diverge or converge from its first century edition that we are uh, witnessing? Also, perhaps in relationship, you know, how the relationship with the West is being reforged. My sense is, you know, the, these movements date back, uh, some of them, to the late 19th century as well. Uh, the origins of pan-Islamism, uh, the origins of pan-Asianism, uh, pan-Africanism, pan-Arabism. All these were a, were a reaction against the encounter with the West. The rise of uh, European capitalism and rise of colonialism and the challenges it presented to the social orders besides the economic order saw a reaction across the world and the need to define their own identity. So there were guys who said, look, we must emulate the West. Yeah. And there's the guys who say we must reject the West. Yeah. So I think that struggle, the debate took mm. place in all non-Western societies, I mean, including in, say, in Russia, mm. the Slavophiles versus Westernizers, or in uh, Central Europe, how do you deal with the rise of modern capitalism and democracy? So those issues, it, it troubled the East in many ways. But none of these movements could hang together. So the, uh, the Pan-Asianism got divided, Pan-Arabism never worked. It's really the U.S. that has brokered mm. peace between the Gulf states and Israel. The U.S. is now trying to do this bigger deal between Saudi Arabia and Israel. So this notion that these groups, resentments were there, these attempted constructing these transcendental movements were real, their effectiveness has been very, very limited. Mm. For example, the OIC really counts for nothing mm. because the inner contradictions within the OIC between various countries is real. So, so I don't think there's any, there is, you can tra trace this intellectual history of these ideas, but as a, as a consequential political force in terms of altering the equations between no, South and the North, if you will, are really questionable. Mm. And the guys who made the difference, for example, China, China's mm. rise or Southeast Asia's economic rise mm. was linked to a collaboration with the Western capital that without the labor arbitrage that the Western capital did in China, or China's willingness to open its hmm. fold for Western capital, China wouldn't be where it is today. Uh, so at least one section of the South today realizes it, you need to work with the West. But the terms of engagement is what is being debated. For example, Mexico, at one point of time, it was part of the global South, but today it's part of NAFTA. So I think uh, South Korea is part of the OECD. Uh, so I think the old categories are, hmm. don't really apply. Hmm. And the Washington consensus uh, on economic you know, change was really about adapting to Western capital, opening markets. Those who did it well have thrived. So, so I think that there is actually it's a, the complexity to it that the partnership with the West has become critical. But the question is the terms. Okay, I like Western capital, mm -hmm. but do I want the Americans to tell me how to organize my society? Mm -hmm. No. So those tussles exist, mm -hmm. but I think it is the involves collaboration as well as uh, confrontation uh, between the West and the Global South. I especially wanted to hone in on Asia and the idea mm. of the Global South, given that China mm. and India, two of the major entities, are located in Asia. 
Uh, you have in your work mentioned very interesting arguments about that we need to pay attention to the varieties of imperialisms and the variety of anti-imperialist movements mm -hmm. which have emerged and in relation with you know South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Asia. So could we hear a little bit more about the internal contradictions yeah. and tensions which underplay the yeah. Asian geopolitics? No, for example, I mean, if you go back to the national movements of China and India in the interwar period, as the Indian national movement grew, it was the conflict with the Britain had sharpened in India. And at the same time, the contradictions between China and Japan started growing. But this idea that the Asian states can come together to defeat imperialism uh, did not really work out because they were fighting different imperialists. India was fighting the British. The Chinese were fighting the Japanese. For example, there's a nice episode about Chiang Kai-shek coming to India, trying to convince Mahatma Gandhi that he should support the British in fighting the Japanese, that Indian national movement should prioritize the fight against Japanese imperialism and work with Britain to defeat the Japanese first. And what Chiang Kai-shek was promising Gandhi, look, once we deal with the Japanese, China will help you fight the, fight the British. But then the deal couldn't be worked out. Mahatma Gandhi was in a, in urgent. He said, quit India. He said, look, no, we're going to we got to fight the Brits first. And the China had to deal with the Japanese imperialism. So, so I think for all the talk mm. that Asia must come together to defeat yeah. imperialism, mm. what was we were fighting different imperialists. Take, uh, for example, in uh, Vietnam, Indochina mm. at the time. Indochina, Vietnamese Communist Party, was willing to seek American support to defeat Japanese imperialism. And the, but in Indonesia and Burma, mm. they were eager to take Japanese support to fight either Dutch imperialism or the British imperialism. So I think the specific context, it mm. played out very, very differently. So this sweeping notion of mm. putting it all into one single metaphor or one single framework was never true and it was never could be applied to the reality on the ground. And I think individual specificities in the historical context. But after the independence, then, then again we thought India, China and rest of Asia will come together mm. to build a post-Western order. But there were deep differences. If you go to the Asian Relations Conference in Delhi, 1947, or the Bandung Conference in 1955, there were deep differences on the strategies for economic development. What attitude should be there towards communism? What attitude should be there towards uh, Western capital? What attitude should be there to the minorities? So these issues were deeply divisive. So, but there, but there is a romanticization of these movements as this great tide standing up to the West, as an intellectual story, yes, but as a story of real politics, as mm. a story of their effect on the real world, was very, very limited. But the fact is that they moved a lot of you know, people animated by these ideas. But in the end, they had to deal with the realities and, and the divisions between them, the differences between intra-Asian differences, intra-Global South differences, intra sub-regional differences. That's, that's one set of issues. And then we saw as the OIC, as uh, all these transcendental movements failed, we saw the rise of regionalism. If you go back to Bandung, it was like, we'll all get together to change the world. To one, the rise of ASEAN, for example. Five countries initially in Southeast Asia, then maybe eventually ten countries. They said, look, we're going to come together and we do our own growth in partnership with the other parts. But if you see the founding of ASEAN, was about countering China. But today, of course, they're very close to China. But in the 60s, and Mao Zedong was unleashing revolution everywhere. Uh, they wanted to protect their internal regimes in, with the support of the West. 
so it is not that they were all anti-West, and actually they were more anti-communist than because the communist revolutions were undermining these regimes, Southeast Asian regimes. They were quite happy to get American support or the Japanese support to fend off uh, Chinese uh, intervention in their society. Which brings me actually to a very crucial question, and which is the current moment, the China question. How do we make sense of, you know, this competitive side of things and the rise of China and the ways in which it is, uh, you know, rearranging the geopolitical landscape, especially in Asia? I would say there are at least uh, two trends. One, China's economic rise has seen, for most people in Asia believed that their economic prospect would be in deeper integration with China. China's economic size, its centrality in Asian geography meant rising China would also lift all other boards, that the market access to China, the Chinese investments, kind of reinforcing, turning Asia. So when we talk about Asia's rise, it's largely about China's rise. But I think once China began to assert itself territorially, that has produced deep fault lines within Asia. China has been pushing India on the Himalayan frontier. It's been pushing the Japanese on the South China Sea maritime frontier. It has claimed territory, almost saying the whole of South China Sea belongs to it. So once the economic power translated into political power, there are deep divisions in Asia today. And we've seen how the U.S., initially Trump and Biden administration, have come back mm-hmm. with great vigor because the internal contradictions in Asia are manifest. Today, India, which is historically focused on befriending China, keeping the Americans out of Asia, today is America's biggest partner in the Quad. And countries like Philippines, uh, which were quite happy to go along with China, are today going back to the U.S. because China is nibbling at Philippines territory. Vietnam, which is a communist country, ideologically akin to China, uh, but as China puts pressure on them, they too are turning to the U.S. Because just a, a few days ago, you had President Biden, who cancelled his visit to ASEAN summit, but decided to go from Delhi to Hanoi and to engage with them, sign a new strategic partnership agreement. Mm. So I think the China's assertiveness mm. has created openings for the West on U.S. certainly. Europe is still some distance away. Uh, but I think the reformulation of alliances, creation of new institutions like the Quad, the AUKUS, bring U.K., U.S. and Australia together. So I think we're seeing a pushback against Chinese attempt to be the dominant power uh, in Asia. This way, I think the idea of Asia for Asians mm. is to be a great slogan that it resonates with a lot of Asianists. Here is a fact. Japan used it mm. to dominate Asia. That didn't work. Chinese didn't want the idea Asia for Asians. But today when China says Asia for Asians, India doesn't want to live under the Chinese domination in Asia, nor will Japan accept a Chinese hegemony over Asia. So I think what sounds a beautiful idea at the top, how it plays out geopolitically on the ground is, is very, very different. I think it joins very nicely what you're saying to something you've written about, the idea of mini-lateralisms, where there are multiple alliances, multiple kind of configurations emerging. You know, could you say a bit more about this idea? I think this is really where Asia is very different from from Europe. Europe is used to collective security through OSC, through the Helsinki process. Of course, their effectiveness can be can be questioned, but they are deeply held institutions. At the same time, also collective defense. That is the formation of large alliances like NATO to counter the Soviet threat. And then its endurance to de- deal with the to Russia's threat. I think in Asia, the Europeans are struck by this notion uh, or kind of held on. Debates are dominated by notions of collective security or collective defense. Because in Asia, it has worked out differently. We never had a NATO in Asia. Asia never had a, you know, a single you know, OSC type of institution in Asia that would set some norms for the region. 
What had operated all these decades was the U.S. bilateral alliances. U.S. did something with, it had bilateral treaties with Japan, South Korea, Philippines, Thailand. That kind of framework, what was called the hub and spoke system. Today, as China's power has risen, the U.S. approach to this is changing. But this is not going to a NATO-like structure. So what it is doing is create overlapping set of minilaterals. Quad is one example, which really draws India into a coalition to create a new security order in Asia. It has brought the UK back to the east of Suez to work with Australia and to generate nuclear submarines for, uh, for Australia. And then you have the Northeast Asia trilateral, where US, Japan and South Korea are coming together Mm. to deal with the Chinese challenge. Mm. Uh, so, so the bilateral security treaties will be there, but creating these minilaterals uh, has become the new way of dealing with the Chinese challenge uh, in Asia. There is also the another feature here, I think, uh, which is not uh, fully understood in Europe, I think, which is really this, unlike in Europe, where the U.S. does all the heavy lifting, and when Americans come and say, guys, spend a little more on defense, there's always a problem uh, here. But in Asia, Japan is ready to do a lot more for defense. India is willing to do a lot more on defense. And the U.S. is saying, we will help you develop capabilities. That it is willing to let Australia build nuclear submarines. I mean, these are not weapons. These are nuclear-powered submarines. Says it's willing to do something it has not done before, except with Britain. When it tells India, I'll give you fighter aircraft mm -hmm. engines. I'll help you build new weapons. It's saying building India in itself provides deterrence against China. So it's not a single architecture of NATO where Americans are the control freak, they decide everything, mm. to one of burden sharing, of creating strong partners in Asia who can on their own steam contribute to deterrence of China. Mm. So this is a different strategy, very different from how the European security politics has evolved. But I think we are here into a very, very interesting phase in, in Asia with many laterals, mm. burden sharing, uh, technology transfers where hemming China mm. into a, a structure of regional balancing which, which would hopefully deter Chinese expansionism. Yeah, this is something, you know, someone called it the a la carte model, you know, the marketplace model where you pick and choose, you know, there is no particular one single framework, which actually brings me to the last thing that I would like to hear from you. How do you see, you know, how this future might be shaping up, like one or two, three things that you think that we must be paying attention to in order to make sense of how the present is evolving yeah. into future? I think one is on the globalization side, where Europe was really the original champion of globalization. And the EU model of integration, of transcending sovereignty, opening markets, uh, free movement of labor, that phase, I mean, Europe has been deeply committed to this. And we're seeing a breakdown of that, both by the Chinese decision on the dual circulation, saying they will do more self-reliance, that they would actually increase their autonomy while forcing the world to depend more on China. And then the U.S. in its reaction now is talking about, you know, where it needs to bring the manufacturing back into the United States. It is giving subsidies to its own industry. Well, industrial policy was considered very bad, uh, but it is now willing to offer massive amount of subsidies mm -hmm. to restore manufacturing uh, in the U.S., to produce uh, semiconductor chips in the U.S., to develop green energy technologies. So I think this is a new framework, completely opposite of the framework of markets know best and open up, yeah. it'll automatically, yeah. you know, things will sort themselves out to one of mm. the big state is back and the conscious effort at creating domestic capabilities. So this is already having some effect in India. India is following a similar policy. And my sense is, you know, that's where the, the ideas of uh, instead of saying absolute globalization to one of 
decentered globalization, resilient supply chains, which means you shorten the supply chains to friendshoring, to trusted mm. geographies. Mm. And in, put it simply, all this is about reducing dependence on China. But I think here Europe has a problem. Well, okay. Europe still focused on globalization, deep economic stakes in China. They're unable to still adapt to this mm. situation. The second is the framing of the Indo-Pacific of a, as a new geography in which the U.S. creates new coalitions, mm. brings in countries like India into the minilaterals and other formats so that you create a new regional architecture uh, beyond the ASEAN, beyond the, mm. the old kind of uh, frameworks that existed. So here, I think here again, Europe is struggling to come up with ideas in terms of how much will it contribute. Although all European countries have issued guidelines on to dealing with the Indo-Pacific, most of them are constrained by the commercial ties to China mm. and their reluctance to abandon those ties and to rethink the geopolitics of China. There's been some debates, uh, but the German strategy on China, or the French strategy is still privileges commercial interests over the geopolitical interests of the type that the Americans do. And while Indians are doing, the Japanese are doing. So I think Europe has some real uh, adaptation to do. And finally, on the technology side, that it has been a happy situation where the Silicon Valley and China's combination where Apple's, for example, Apple phone production in, in the uh, in China all these decades. Then you have the where the American investments into Chinese uh, technologies produced a kind of seemingly happy world for everyone. But I think that system is going to break up. Uh, already we've seen, you know, but they call it de-risking or deglobalization. Americans have pushed, to work very hard to push Huawei out of uh, the 5G market. Could I add uh, the question of climate change to this, you know, that how this very heightened awareness and consciousness about climate change, particularly in Europe, is, uh, you know, how, you know, policies over, you know, energy, oil consumption, etc., etc., that they are also underway towards a shift. For instance, uh, EU is actually, um, has already started investing very heavily in clean energy side of things. Do you see any of those having an impact in this future, yeah. future scenario? I think until now, I think Europe thought, you know, China was a natural partner in mm. building the green revolution. But today, my sense is the geopolitics is compelling Europe to rethink as well. Mm. Europe has a lot of strengths to bring. Already we're seeing Europe now wanting to work closely with India on the development of green technologies, mm. uh, on the development of uh, new energy systems. So I think you're already beginning to see that. And I think the pressure from the United States, where it is drawing European companies to buy through subsidies, etc., to come to US to invest in US conditions. So I think Europe will have to find a way of creating sufficient incentives before its industry runs away to U.S. Mm. or looks out. Mm. So, so my sense is, but Europe has a lot to offer in this area. But I think if it does this adaptation, mm. how do you, a non-China focused green strategy, how does that work? Mm. Here my sense is uh, Europe probably is in the beginnings of that debate and we might see a lot more in that in the near future. And here I think countries like India are very eager to work with Europe. Certainly the Nordic countries, what we've seen in the last two years, the Nordic summits, in India and the Nordic countries has really been focused on uh, green green energy, green technologies and where the mm. Nordics can contribute to India's transition. Mm. And while India providing the market and scalability to ideas that have emerged out of the Nordic countries. I think there is so much uh, to think about. And I think on this note, I really want to thank you so much for taking your time out and sharing your thoughts with us. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Dr. Kautman. Thank you for listening to the Nordic Asia podcast. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.